Man, what a what a good song to get us into where we're going to be this morning about uh, really changing our our perspective and our point of view based upon what we think we know and what we think we've figured out, but everything that God has done. And that's really the avenue we're going to be going at this morning. Um, our point of view on, on things in life can impact what we attach ourselves to, whether those things are true or whether those things are false. And no matter what age we get in life, we are constantly wrestling with point of view or perspective. For example, when you were young, was anybody here ever scared of roller coasters? Some. Your point of view was that, you know, you could probably die on that. And so thankfully, a lot of roller coasters have the chicken exit. Many times, my brother, who's about five years older than me, uh, tried to pull me all the way up to a roller coaster ride called the Orient Express at Worlds of Fun. And I don't know if you remember that ride, but uh, there was good reason to be scared of that ride because a lot of bad things happened on that ride. Um, but he always wanted to get me on those and those loop-de-loops and, and curls and all that stuff always scared me. My point of view was that it was not safe, and so I attached myself to that fear. Uh, when I was young and uh, would go swimming, I always thought it'd be cool to jump off the high dive, but there was a time I was scared to jump off the high dive. Uh, my brother once again convinced me that it would be okay. We were at a camp in Windermere, uh, just at Roach, Missouri, outside of Lake of the Ozarks, and they had a high dive. At that point in time, you could swim in the lake. Uh, unfortunately for me, as I got up on the high dive and stood in the ledge and I looked down at the lake, that was the same summer I saw the movie Jaws. And I was for sure if I jumped out, a great white shark would come up and swallow me whole before I hit the water. And so my point of view is that high dives were not safe, and I attached myself to that fear. Um, When I was six years old, I would always go at least one week during the summer and go spend time with my granny and granddad, who are my mom's parents. They live outside Russellville, Missouri. And I would go and fishing with my granddad. He let me ride around his tractor, sometimes the horses. And we just have a good time out on the farm. Well, when I was six, I went there, and uh, during the week, my granddad said, hey, I want to take you into your Uncle Gary's house, which is my mom's brother, and he has something he wants to show you. And so we drove into Russellville, Missouri, uh, where they lived at the time, and we went down uh, to their backyard, and sure enough, my Uncle Gary had two puppies. Their, dogs had, their dog had had two puppies, a boy and a girl, and as I was six, and so puppies are like the best thing when you're six. And so I sat there and played with them, and, and they were barking and doing their little gnawing, biting thing, and it was no big deal because it was puppies. Well, my Uncle Gary looked at me and saw the joy I was having, obviously, and says, would you like to take one home? Problem is he did not ask my mom. But I was six years old, and the answer was automatically yes. The answer is automatically we're taking a dog home. And I now have a dog of my own at six years of age. And so I thought I have the best dog. My perspective, this is the best dog in the world. I attached myself to this dog. I named him Tippy. He looked like uh, Benji. Y'all remember Benji? He was like my generation's version of Lassie. And so I had Benji, and I was taking him home. My mom found out when she came to pick me up, because my granddad said we had something to go pick up uh, at her brother's house, my Uncle Gary, and uh, she was not very happy. I'm sure they had an adult conversation somewhere out of my uh, listening uh, view, but I took Tippy home, um, and I played with him all summer long, and I remember Tippy, uh, my point of view, he was a great dog, and that quickly started to change, and my attachment to him quickly started to change as well, because Tippy uh, was very aggressive, 
Um, before the summer's out, I had many Band-Aids and many open wounds because of Tippy. He was not uh, Benji nor Lassie. He was more Cujo. Um, and so I, I thought, well, he's just got to grow out of this. He's just a puppy. You know, he's got to get through this. And so I went to school one day, and my mom is one of those that, you know, dogs are like free-range dogs in her house. And, and so Tippy had the house to himself as everybody's off at school. And I came home one day from school to find that my favorite stuffed animals had been beheaded and gutted. And I broke down in tears. I was so mad at this dog, um, but yet I was attached to him. My point of view, this is the best dog ever. He's just got to get through this. He's going he's to work it out. Well, um, as the year went on, there was an, an older gentleman. We lived in Milan, Missouri at that time. An older gentleman walked by our house every day with a cane. And um, I know my dad numerous times invited him to come to church. And, and uh, he was the, my dad was the pastor at the church there in town. And and the old man walked by, and Tippy every day would wait for him to come and be eyes focused um, for the kill. Um, I'm not joking, um, because one day Tippy got out, and this old man came by. He went immediately for the cane, pulled the old man to the ground, grabbed hold of his legs, and started thrashing. And uh, so at that point in time, my perspective of Tippy uh, had changed. It had been altered, and I was no longer attached to the to the dog, because, which is good, because my mom told me that Tippy went to go live on a farm, and uh, we all know what that means when we tell our children that, um, but uh, our, our point of views, our point of views of things can alter our attachments to things, and that's exactly what we're dealing with this morning. This is our last week of our Like series, as we are going to be in the book of Philippians in the New Testament. In chapter 4, this was the number one mentioned passage of, of all of our likes as we set out to kind of pull the church several months ago, and we've walked through many stories in the Bible, and we're going to conclude again in Philippians chapter 4, where it's dealing with perspective or points of view that alter our attachments and what we should truly be attached to as uh, people of God. As you begin making your way to Philippians chapter 4 again in the New Testament, Driven by the Apostle Paul, uh, there's no dispute to that. And what we must understand as we're reading through Philippians is Paul is in prison. Uh, most likely he is in prison in Rome at this point in time, though there are some other uh, places he could have been. But the overall consensus is Paul's in prison in Rome, and he's in prison at Rome um, because he was preaching the gospel. He was preaching and living out the gospel amongst the Jewish people, amongst the Roman citizens, and so he's now in Rome for his faith. And there's multiple reasons which Paul is led to write to the believers in what would be Philippi, even though we call it Philippians. One uh, interesting note about Philippians, it is one of the most affectionate letters Paul wrote to any believers uh, that he, was, he knew of. Uh, we look in Romans, and Paul did not know the believers firsthand in Romans, but in Philippians, Paul knew them. He helped establish that church. And unlike any of his other letters, Paul does not give a, an issue of rebuke. He does not give them an issue of things that they need to start shaping up within the life of the church, but he's writing a letter of affection. Matter of fact, if you look in chapter 1, he says, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And so unlike this letter, there is no rebuke. 
Secondly, Paul is writing uh, the believers in, in Philippi because they have sent him some sort of gift, most likely a financial gift, in order to carry on his missional work as he's taking the gospel into the known world. And so they had a belief, as well as Paul does, he talks about it in this letter, that he was eventually going to get out of prison. He was eventually going to deal to continue his missional work and preaching the gospel and taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Um, and they believed that, and so they wanted to support Paul in that. And finally, what Paul had to address to the believers is to give them an understanding, to give them a perspective change, a point of view change on what was going on not only in his life, but how it impacts their own life. And so as he begins to deal with this perception change and how they should view things, no matter what circumstance they find themselves in, no matter what situation they're going through, whether it's good or bad, how they got to that situation, what's happening in that situation, how, how to live it out and how they should respond now as citizens of heaven. And Paul deals with that word or that phrase a lot in the letter of Philippians, his citizenship of heaven. That now as children of God, as believers, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling inside of us and we are now citizens of heaven. And the reason it's so dominant here in Philippians because Philippi, the people in Philippi were so proud of their citizenship with the Roman Empire. They were proud the way Rome viewed Philippi. They were proud that the, the prestigious role they had within uh, the empire. And so that was something they prized and they glorified. Now, Paul was a Roman citizen. He was also a Jew. He was a dual citizen type of guy. But he's saying that it doesn't matter our attachment to this world, whether we're citizens to Philippi or to Rome or to anything else. The most important thing is that we understand our citizenship to heaven, our citizenship to the eternal God, our citizenship to the kingdom of God, and that is now how we should view life. That is our point of view. That is our perspective on everything we see, and that is what we attach ourselves to. And so this, this wording that he is giving uh, in Philippians chapter 4, is he's beginning to summarize this. He's beginning to bring it to a close and let him understand that, you know what, the Lord is near. That phrase that we're going to read here in a second is, is speaking of the final judgment. When one day every human being on this planet, every human being that's ever lived, will stand before God and will give an account for their life. And either they will be accounted with the righteousness of Christ because they've placed their faith in Christ alone, or they will be accounted with their sin. And if they're accounted with their sin before a holy God, God will shoo them away and send them into eternal judgment in hell. And so Paul says, now that we are believers, because he's writing to believers, this is a message with believers in mind. Now that we know, now that we have faith, now that our, our salvation is, is sure and it is sealed and the Spirit is inside of us, now that we are citizens of heaven, everything we view in life, whether good or bad, is through that perspective, and that is what we are attaching ourselves to. So no matter what comes, whether it's hell or high water, we will continue to be faithful. We will continue to live like citizens of heaven, no longer citizens of this earth. And so in chapter 4, this is a passage of Scripture that is a lot of times uh, misinterpreted and taken out of context. It is with that in mind, that now that you are God's children, this is now how you should be living your life, how you should see life, and what you should be attaching yourself to in life. And so he begins here in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything. But in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, 
which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence and if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Verse 9 says, Do you do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. And I don't say this out of need, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through Him who strengthens me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for being our God, and thank you for this place where if someone here does not know you as their God and their Lord and Savior, that you're going to give them the opportunity to enter in that relationship. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth it gives to us and, and the way it continues to change us and mold us and transform us into your likeness. Father, I ask in this time, this place, that you use me as an instrument of your righteousness that you, you push my, my sinful state aside, Lord, that it only be you heard here today, that you would be glorified, you would be lifted up, that we would love you in this time with our hearts and our minds and allow you to have your way with us. So, Father, I thank you for every person that's here this morning. I thank you you know exactly what's going on in their life. I thank you there's nothing that has surprised you. Lord, in this time, this place, as we bring all of our burdens and our joys before you, I ask that you just meet us where we are and draw us into your presence. Overwhelm us, Father. Shake our foundations if they are not on you. And Lord, make us more like you before we leave this place. If we have failed you in any way in our time of worship and lifting up songs to you, Father, forgive us. For you are worthy. I thank you for this day. I thank you for what's going to happen here. I thank you for allowing us to be a part of it once again. If I praise all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's kind of walk through this. If you were to read through Philippians, and I encourage you to do it on your own maybe a little bit later this afternoon, you're going to find that there's a constant mention of the day of judgment, a constant mention of one day this life is going to come to a close. There's a constant uh, reminder that we struggle with attaching ourselves and viewing this life for more than what it actually is. This eventually is all going to fade away. It's eventually all going to come to an end, and eventually we're going to stand before God in all His glory and all His holiness. We're going to understand truly who He is and how much He loved us. And in that moment, we're going to either come to understand how much He loved us through His Son, Jesus Christ, or how much we have wasted our life because we continue to push God aside. And it's with this perspective that Paul, again, who is in prison, is telling the believers in, in Philippi and here in Philippians to rejoice. Rejoice. Now, Paul's rejoicing isn't rejoice because I'm in prison. Paul's rejoicing isn't rejoice because we are being persecuted. Rejoice because the gospel is, they're attempting to stop the spreading of the gospel and attempting to, to move us out of our faith and trusting in God. Rejoice because God is faithful. And no matter what happens in our life, we rejoice because God still sits on his throne. Jesus still is alive. He rose from the grave and we rejoice because God loves us and he is for us. 
It has nothing to do with our current circumstances. It has nothing to do with our current situation. It has nothing to do with anything. It is simply focused on God, who He is, what He's done, and what He continues to do in our life. And so I rejoice, Paul says, in the Lord always. And again, I'll say rejoice. That word rejoice in the Greek means to scream with an uncontrollable scream. It's to be giddy for God. How about that? It's to laugh and it's to have excitement. It's to completely let go. And though it may sound like an emotional word, what Paul is drawing from is, as he set this up is that it is completely focused on God. I rejoice because God loves me. I rejoice because God is for me. I rejoice because of the grace and the mercy and the faithfulness God has for me. Even though I've been unfaithful at times, I rejoice no matter where I find myself. So Paul, who is in prison, is saying rejoice because God is good. And it doesn't matter what you can't understand, God is always good. Matter of fact, when he wrote to the believers in Rome, he says that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. I believe Paul understood the words of Christ that when Christ told His disciples, if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. And he understood the words in teachings to Christ when Jesus said that blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for the kingdom of heaven is theirs you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven for that is how they persecute the prophets who are before you Paul is saying that as believers as citizens of heaven no matter where we find ourselves, our perspectives has, have changed. We're no longer seeing this world as the end all. We're seeing this world as just a passing through. And so our, now our perspective is on heaven. Our perspective is on one day we will be in our heavenly bodies before a heavenly God who loves us. And because that is true, not by anything we have done or deserve to receive, but simply because God is for us, we rejoice no matter what. This, this guy's in prison. Okay? He's not writing this from a condo on the beach or a cottage in the mountains or a million-dollar mansion. He's not writing this from somewhere where he's living it up. He's writing it from a zero-star prison where he's shackled down, all because he was faithful. He's in prison because he was being obedient to God, which I believe counters everything that a lot of Christianity believes, that if I do the right thing, if I do enough good stuff, good things will happen. Let me tell you, that's not always true. This world is opposed to the things of God. It is opposed to the gospel and the message of God. And so when we live out our faith and we live it out according to the word and the will of God, sometimes persecution is going to happen. Sometimes you might lose your job. Sometimes relationships may end. Sometimes bad things will happen to good people. But Paul says no matter what happens in our life, you know what we're called to do as Christians? Rejoice. Paul understood the worst thing that could happen to him is they could kill him. And if they killed him, where'd he go? Heaven. Well, that's a bummer. Right? No more sickness, no more pain, no more jealousy, anger, rage. See, Paul was so focused on this, and he's leading these believers in Philippi now to understand his circumstance, but to understand how they are to live their life in the midst of persecution. As a Christian... As a believer, our life is fueled by the fact that we are known by God and loved by God. 
And because of that, we rejoice. So Paul says in verse 5, let your graciousness be known. And this is because we're rejoicing. That word graciousness, it may be read as some different word in other translations. Some of them write it as, let your mercy or your tolerance, let your patience, your reasonableness, your gentleness, your unselfishness, or your consideration be known. The reason there's so many words used for that, that word graciousness in verse 5 is because it's one of the hardest Greek words to capture with one English word. The word implies justice. And what it means is, is that let your graciousness, your tolerance, your patience, whatever, let your justice be known. It's because now that we are fully aware God loves us and that we cannot live up to the standards of God as, as laid out in the law of God, and we know we fall short consistently and constantly, yet God does not see us as a sinner anymore, but He has reconciled us by Jesus Christ, that we are now His people, we are now covered in the righteousness of Christ, fully forgiven, our, our debt is fully paid, our sins are completely removed, that that justice that God has given us, not that we deserve it, is now the justice that we are to show people in our life. So we rejoice, and then people who are in our life, we give them grace. Let your graciousness be known. And the only way to give grace is to live out grace. The only way we're going to live out grace is we are fully aware of salvation and our perspective is fully tuned to the heart of God. Otherwise, we're going to want to put people in their place. We're going to, if someone does this wrong, we want to make sure they understand that they did something bad to us. But Paul says now as citizens of heaven, now that we're no longer attached to this world and the ways of this world, that by the way we live, we are rejoicing and we're giving grace continuously because God has given us grace. More grace than we could ever deserve. Paul says, let it be known to everyone. And then verse 6, he says, don't worry about anything. Paul's aware, and, and we're aware, that there are things in life that we worry about. If you have kids, you worry about your kids. If you have family, you have a job, you, there's things we worry about. He's not being oblivious to that, that we're not going to be anxious, we're not going to worry. What he's saying then is that we're not to worry about anything because God looks at us and says, I've got it. I've got you and I've got this. And anything that comes in your life, I have seen. And I have a plan for you to get through this. And there's a plan for you to even go through it. So don't worry about it. Don't be anxious about it. And the reason we, we struggle with that is because we want to feel like we're in control, that we've got it all in our hands. But to not worry is to make sure that the door to temptation is not opened. Because when we fall into temptation, you know what we do? We sin. And so Paul in the Bible is saying, don't worry. Don't be anxious about those things because God has you. Instead, live your life as citizens of heaven, being aware that the Lord is near. And then he gives instruction, but in everything, 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 through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So Paul begins in verse 4 with worship. He, he begins and goes in verse 6 about prayer and finally about thanksgiving. The word prayer or petition or supplication, as some translations have it, are actually two different words. The word prayer means that we are so focused on God. That's where our prayer begins. It says, Jesus says, your kingdom come. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your name be honored as holy is what that means. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That means that's where prayer starts. It is thankful for who God is, and, and it's all about God. That's our perspective. That's our point of view. That's what we're attaching ourselves. Then petitions and supplications are laying those things that we might become anxious and worried about at the feet of God. 
In other words, what the Bible tells us, if we have cares of this world, we need to lift those up in prayers to God. We need to lay those at His feet and say, you know what, God, you can handle it. Because my God, my Heavenly Father, is the God that can break natural law for my sake if it is in His will. Just think of some of the stories we have in the Bible. Think of the plagues. The crossing of the Red Sea. Water from rock. Manna from heaven. You think of the army of the Lord surrounding, surrounding the mountain when the prophet Elisha was there. You think of what God does for His people. Jesus walked on water, fed the thousands. He rose from the dead. God can break natural law for you if it's His will. And since He would be willing to do that for us, we can just lay at His feet and say, all right, God, you've got it. All I have to do now is turn my heart and my mind to you. I have to be focused on you. I have to be attached to the things that you're attached to. I have to see things now through your perspective or your point of view. And just like some of us may have been scared when we rode roller coasters, eventually some of us got on those roller coasters, didn't we? Eventually they became fun. Why? Because our perspective changed. We had a relational connection with it. See, your, your perspective of this world and the cares of this world will never change until you have a relational connection with God. You can know all about God. You can rattle off memory verses. You can sing songs they sing in church. But until you are relationally connected with God through Jesus Christ, that will never change and never alter. And so the promises that are laid out here in Scripture, verse 7, the peace of God. That word peace means harmony with God. I'm so connected with God, I'm in harmony with Him. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. See, when I trust God, not just for my eternal salvation, but for my day-to-day, I will give, be given the peace of God. I will be at harmony with God. Why? Because these, these words that it's it's going to guard your hearts and mind. The word for heart is our physical and our spiritual state. The word for mind there refers to how, how we perceive things all around us. The word guard is a military term. It means that He will protect you. The peace of God will protect you. It will surround you. It will encamp you. He will be your strong tower, as the Old Testament says. It, it, will, it will be your guiding force. And it implies as a metaphor that you will be protected by the law of God. Why? Because now my mind and my heart is tuned to that. I am attached to that. I'm focused on not what the world wants, but what God wants for my life. And I'm living out in obedience, not to earn or work for my salvation or even to keep my salvation, simply because God is for me and He has His best for me if I just align my life with His Word. Again, keep in mind, because Paul's reminding the believers in Philippi several times, he's in prison while he says this. That he has a peace of mind and a peace of heart that surpasses his current circumstances. Why? Because he's not focused on where he is or why he is or how he is. He's focused on the God who is. He says, finally, brother, sister, whatever's true. See, now he's saying, now you've got these things that you're wrestling with and, and being anxious about, but this is now what you turn your attention to. This is now what you focus on. Brothers and sisters is a term of endearment. It says, whatever is true. The word true means that what is not false or deceptive. Whatever is 
honorable. And what is honorable for a believer? It's to live a life that is holy and pleasing to God, whatever is just. And that goes back to that word in verse 5 of graciousness. Whatever is pure, meaning whatever is not sinful, whatever is lovely, whatever is, is lovely and whatever produces love. Does, as we have in our church van, love God, love people. Whatever is producing that in our life, that's what we should think on or dwell on. Whatever is commendable. That word commendable means whatever is, is right in speaking. It is a language term. Meaning as believers, as citizens of heaven, the things that come out of our mouth should be uplifting to people. It shouldn't be a stumbling block. See, by what we say and how we say, we're either leading people to Christ or we're putting barriers in front of them so they'll never come to Him. How's your language? Paul says whatever is commendable, whatever is worthy of being spoken, if there's any moral excellence, if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. And that word dwell means to live in them. Not only to live in them, but to live them out. That as citizens of heaven, this is now our residence. That we're thinking and viewing things far beyond the ways of this world. See, by the way we live and the way we react to things, we either show that we're children of God or we're children of disobedience. And so Paul is calling the believers here, it's time to change your perspective. He knows they're worried about him. He knows they don't understand everything that's going on in, in his life or their life. But the reality is, it's not to view things through the ways of this world, but to view things through God's eyes. That God is doing something far beyond our expectations and far beyond our knowledge for his good. We just got to trust him. We just got to give him praise. We just have to be thankful for what he's doing. And so Paul drives home the point there in verse 12. The end of verse 11, actually, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself, which right now is currently prison. I know how both to make do with little. I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being content whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. Not only is this a guy in prison, this is a guy who was stoned and left for dead. And he says, I've learned the secret of being content. Notice it says he learned. What we've got to understand as believers in Christ, this isn't something... Yeah, when we're saved, we have peace with God because of Jesus Christ, okay? We're clothed as righteous. We have the power of God inside us because God gives us a spirit to dwell inside of us. We have the ability to, to, to see things in different ways, but this is something as we grow closer to Christ, become more like Christ, it's something that is going to be learned. It's a constant process. That's why it's a relationship with God. God continuing to mold us and shape us more into his likeness to transform us so we're no longer conforming to the patterns of this world. It's, it's a learning. And Paul learned it by living out his faith. Despite his understanding, despite his perspective, his point of view, despite of his attachments to his old way of living, that in living out his faith, he has learned to have this peace of God and to be content with whatever comes his way. It's from this statement that Paul writes in verse 13, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Now Paul wasn't talking about self-confidence. 
and his abilities or his achievements or even his, his ability to get out of prison or people to, to work for his release. He wasn't talking about that. He's talking about his confidence in Christ because everything that Paul lays out as we live about being content, about having a peace, about thinking about things and dwelling in things far beyond this world is far beyond our own ability. So you and I are plagued with a sinful nature. And when things cause worry or concern, we are tempted to act out out of that sinful nature. What Paul's saying is that to live a life as a citizen of heaven, to live a life where people can look at us and say, you know what, you live differently, you are different, you talk different, you think different, you project different things. To do that is far beyond our ability. So Paul says, I can do all these things that I need to do as a citizen of heaven through Christ who strengthens me. It's not a verse about Paul kicking the winning field goal. It's not a verse about hitting a home run. It's not a verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me as I raise my children. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me as I go through this diet. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me as I whatever fill in the blank. That's not what Paul is talking about. Those, those are nice. He's saying, I can do all things in my life that brings complete glory to God because Christ strengthens me in those things. Because that's God's will for my life. It's those things I'm strengthened in. And it's those things I am now to be pursuing after. That I am focusing on, that I am attaching to. He knows that it's difficult in this life. But he says, as children of God and as God's people, we live in a world that is not our home. And since we don't belong here and we know of something greater to come, we should live like it. And people should see that we're living like it. They should see a difference. And because we can't do it on our own, Christ will strengthen us to do it because God is for us, not against us. Our driving force as the people of God, is to bring all glory to God. Paul would write in Colossians in chapter 3, in verse 17, he says, And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Same chapter, jumping down to 23 and 24, says, Whatever you do, do it from the heart. Same language he used there in Philippians. It's some, something done for the Lord and not for people. Knowing that you receive the reward of inheritance from the Lord, you serve the Lord Christ. See, this is now our perception. Our perception as people of God is everything I do now is to bring glory to God. I am to put Him on display. And as a church, that is the only thing we can be about. He must be put on display. He must be glorified. And even though as a church, there's going to be times we're going to do things we're probably not going to be all in agreement about. It's reality, okay? But we can do all things through Christ when we are focused on the things of Christ and the things of God. We can get through these things as people of God. And we're going to bring glory to God in everything we do. So Art Fest here in a couple weeks. Not about us having a VBS, because all other churches have VBSs. It's about us glorifying God. When we do 
at the park or we do Wednesday night lives, it's about glorifying God. When we do children's church or youth ministry, it's about glorifying God. When we do worship, when we preach the Word of God, when we listen to the Word of God preach, it's about glorifying God. And I'm going to tell you now, that's only going to happen if your perspective or your point of view is actually on the things of God, not the things of this world. There's a huge danger in churches today that the preacher can only go so long and we better be out of church at a certain amount of time. And I'm not saying that's because that's what happens here. I don't know. You never told me, so I assume I'm fine yet. But can we honestly say that is a perspective where we're focused and attached to the things of God? Are we more attached to our lunch time? As a church, there's times in churches where people will hold back their offerings and their tithes because they don't necessarily agree with what is being said or what is being done at the church. And so they feel they're making a statement. All you're making a statement about is that you don't trust God. That's it. You think God is completely reliant upon your dollar? That's a little image of God, isn't it? See, we are here to think about what is honorable, what is true, what is lovely. We speak words that are commendable. Why? Because the Lord is near. There will come a day He's coming back. And until that time, we live as citizens of heaven to bring glory to Him so other people that God has placed in our life, our life they can also come to relationship with Him. That's God's ultimate goal for your life, is to be in a relationship with Him. Not to have your checklist of spirituality or righteousness, to be in a relationship with Him. That's the gospel. The gospel is that God created you to be in a relationship with Him. That's why you're created. It's not about the next step up at work. It's not about the next salary. It's not about getting your kids out of the house so you can have a dating life again. It's about a relationship with God. Issue is, is, as Paul is talking about, is our perspective and the things we attach ourselves are, are sinful. And it's our sin that is separating us from God and making the right decisions sometimes and seeing things through the right perspective at times. And so our, our reaction is, I'm just going to do better. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to go to church more. I'm going to be more active at church. I'm, I'm gonna, we, start, we make our own list. And God says, you can't work this out. You can't. Because the standard is holiness, and you're going to miss it every single time. But because God wants a relationship with us, with us, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for us, in our place, to take God's wrath upon Himself. They placed Him in a tomb, but He rose again that we could be completely forgiven. And when we place our faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone, the Bible says we are saved. We are now citizens of heaven. We've been given the indwelling Holy Spirit inside of us to empower us, to give us a peace beyond understanding, a contentment with life, and to be able to see things differently and to live differently. We're now eternal citizens of heaven by our faith in Jesus Christ. doesn't happen when you kick the bucket. It's happening right now if you're a child of God. But here's the truth of the matter. It has to be dealt with. All these promises about peace and guarding and dwelling and strength, all these are incapable if you have yet to accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Matter of fact, the scary reality is you are completely alone. And that's not what God wants for you. He loves you too much to leave you alone. 
And so in this moment, this time, we're going to have a time of invitation. I'm going to ask the worship team to come down. And if you've yet to accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, this is the time. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't even have to know what it's going to exactly look like from this day on. It's just that right now you know I need Jesus and I don't have Jesus and I want Jesus because I want that strength. I want that peace. I want that, that guarding over my heart and my mind. I need that. If you're willing to accept Jesus Christ that he died for your sins and rose again, you could be completely forgiven. This is what this time is for. But maybe you're here and you're a citizen already of heaven. And the reality is, is you know you've been churning your eyes to the wrong things. And you've been attaching yourself to the wrong things. And you keep wondering why you keep getting yourself into the messes you find yourselves in. Maybe this time of invitation is for you now is to turn your eyes completely upon Jesus. If you need to come to the altar, that's fine. If you want to grab someone to come and pray with you, that's awesome. If you just need to repent where you sit or stand right now, then that's what you need to do. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. And thank you for this promise, Lord, that you give us. You gift us not only with salvation, you gift us with strength and peace. Lord, you know we are all sinful messes before your holiness. We're filthy rags. You know, there's things that we worry about. There's things that we attach ourselves to that are not of you and that are not godly and do not bring you glory. This time is placed as your children are sitting before your presence. Lord, help us to change our perspective. Help us to see through your point of view. Help us to attach ourselves to you, no matter the fears that may begin to emerge and what that looks like or what we may need to get out of our life. Lord, help us to trust you in this moment that you will give us strength to do these things that bring you glory. Father, I pray for those that are here that do not know you as your Lord and Savior. Maybe they come to the understanding they knew about you and they've heard a lot about you and they're aware of that, but they've yet to truly confess you and make you their Lord and Savior in front of your people. Lord, I ask you just to give them the strength in this moment to come before and admit that they're a sinner like us all, but they believe that your son Jesus Christ died for their sins and rose again like you did for all of us because you love us. Father, we give you this time as we come to a time of invitation and ask that you alone be glorified in it. Praise on your son's name. Amen.